0: In the passage that we've just read here in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Solomon is now turning his focus on these subjects, on injustice and on oppression. In verse 16 of chapter 3, Solomon looks at the place of justice. The modern day equivalent would be the law courts. And as he looks at the place where justice is supposed to be meted out, what he finds there is the opposite of justice. He finds there injustice. And he's horrified by it. Instead of finding righteousness there, the courts were corrupt places of wickedness as he describes it. Now, many times if you and I are treated unfairly in our lives, we can do something about it. If you're a child and your sibling mistreats you, you can go to your parents and you can protest what's going on. If your teacher is unfair to you, you can go to the faculty of your school or your institution If your employer is unjustly taking advantage of you or abusing you in the workplace, you can file a lawsuit. So many times in the society that we live in, there are courses of action that we can take to try to rectify injustices that we're experiencing. But that is not what Solomon is talking about here in chapter three. The kind of injustice that Solomon is talking about here is the kind of injustice that we have no power to correct over in chapter four he speaks to this related issue to injustice the issue of oppression let's look at verse one again in chapter four again he says i saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun and behold the tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them on the side of their oppressors there was power and there was no one to comfort them. Here Solomon is looking at systemic oppression. He's saying that there was no one to comfort the oppressed. The oppressors were the ones that possessed all power. They could do whatever they want and all those who were oppressed were able to do is cry and cry out and there was no one there to comfort them. No one to come to their aid. Perhaps he's referring to economic oppression, which was a major issue in the ancient world, where those who were rich and powerful would abuse and take advantage of their labor force. They would withhold their wages. They would not honor their agreements. In the New Testament, the book of James, he speaks to this sort of economic oppression. James writes this in James chapter five. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Heavy words. Now up to this point in chapter three, Solomon has been arguing that there is an appropriate time and season for everything that is done under the sun. From the time of our birth to the time of our death and everything in between. And Solomon tells us in plain language that the world that you and I live in is God's world. And God is the one that is in control of everything, these times and these seasons in our world and listen in your life. In fact, in chapter 14, he says, whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. In other words, Solomon has been making the case up to this point in chapter three that God is sovereign. God is completely in control. This world is not uh, running by chance or fate. This world is under God's control. Now, of course, this raises a question. If all that is true, If the world that we live in is being governed by God, not chance, then how do we make sense of all that's going wrong in our world? How do we account for the pain and the suffering and the evil, or in this context, the injustice and oppression that we see in the world around us? How could these things exist in a world governed by a good God? And these are the questions that Solomon is going to wrestle through in this passage. And from his reflections, we can gain a few insights that help us to process these questions too. Surprisingly, Solomon finds um, solace in death. He finds solace in death. Now that sounds kind of crazy, right? Death does not seem to be the place that we would look to and go, that's where I find solace in a world going wrong. Most people are terrified of death. They don't look to it as a place of comfort. They're afraid of it. Woody Allen famously said, I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. And I think that's how most people feel. It's like we are scared of death. We don't want to be there when it happens. Unfortunately for Woody Allen and for all of us, we will be there when it happens. But why death? Why why is that a place of solace? Well, here's the first insight that Solomon is able to offer us. God will judge all people at the appointed time. We see this in verse 17. He says, I said in my heart, so this is deep internal reflection. He's looking at injustice. Doesn't make sense on the surface level, of course. It just seems completely absurd in this world. If God's in charge, how are these things going wrong? And he's deeply reflecting, and he says in his own heart, verse 17, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, For there is a time for every matter and for every work. So although Solomon, or he calls himself the preacher in this book, although the preacher sees a horrific failure in the judgments that are being handed out in these courts of justice, he knows that there will be equity and justice in God's heavenly court. He says, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. That language brings us back to verse 1 of chapter 3 when he began his poem about the world. He says, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Again, everything in this world has an appropriate or appointed time in God's economy. And now Solomon is saying, including justice. Sure, it might not be manifesting itself in every situation in the here and now. There are times in this world, because this is a broken world system, where you're longing for justice, justice needs to happen, and yet it doesn't come through. But Solomon is saying, look, as I step back and I really reflect on things, I'm aware of this truth, that one day there is coming an appointed time, there's coming a moment when God is going to judge both the wicked and and the righteous, everything is going to come to light, and everything is going to have its day in court. Now, one conclusion that people can draw, and sometimes do draw, from all of the evil that they see in the world, is that God doesn't exist. They look at the world the way that it is, and they say, there's no way that there can be a God, because this world is too evil. Another conclusion people can draw is that perhaps there is a God, but if there is, he must be evil and malevolent. The Bible consistently rejects that. The Bible teaches us that God is not responsible for evil. God is not trying to be malicious to you. He's not not the one that's behind all of the sin and destruction in the world. No, the Bible teaches us that humans are responsible for the evil that we see in the world. In James 1, 13 and 14, he deals with this. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. James then is rightly locating the genesis of evil that we see in the world in the human heart. It's a slanderous accusation to say to a good God that you're the one that is making me do evil. You're the one that is causing sin in the world. We're the ones who are responsible. Another response to the evil and injustice in the world is that sometimes people would say, well, perhaps God is ambivalent or God is just unconcerned with the world, sort of a deistic perspective on the world. Sure, maybe there's a creator, maybe he got everything going, he kind of wound up the universe and sent it off and running, but he just doesn't care about what's going on right now he must not care look at the world but family this is not solomon's view none of these are solomon's view none of these are the bible's view according to the scriptures god is keeping track of everything and he keeps perfect accounts the very last verse in ecclesiastes tells us as much this is ecclesiastes 12 verse 14 for god will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. God sees everything. He's he's not oblivious to what's going on in the world. God sees it, and according to this verse, he's keeping perfect records. And God doesn't just see the outward things. God doesn't just see the blatant injustices that we can perceive with our own eyes. No, God sees the secret intentions of our hearts. And God's keeping record of that as well. One day every person, one day every word, one day every action, one day even every thought is going to have its day in court. And God is going to meet out justice for the universe. Now oftentimes people push back against this notion of a God who judges. They think, how, how petty, like why, why would God judge every thought or every action or everything that's going on in the world? Now, please note that the people who feel like that are typically safe, insulated people. What I mean by that is they're people that, by and large, have not endured gross injustice and oppression in their life oftentimes people who think like that live in very comfortable cultures and societies where they're sort of insulated from the real horrors and the real evils that are happening in the world and so when they say that and they push back against the idea of a god who judges wrongdoing their, their concern is really a personal one they just don't like the idea that god's going to hold them accountable for the things that they've done wrong or the people that they've hurt in their life But you need to know this is not the view of the Hebrew people. They're they're not looking at God and going, I, I can't believe he's a God who judges people. No, they saw the judgment of God as a great comfort. Far from seeing the idea of God being a judge as a divine shortcoming, the Hebrew people were able to see it as a divine perfection. Perhaps this is because their own history as a people was one that was marked by tremendous suffering at the hands of relentless and oppressive overlords. In fact, if you read the book of Exodus, which we studied as a church uh, a while back, that's the account of God's people being delivered out of, listen, 400 years of slavery and oppression at the hands of the pharaohs of Egypt. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, we read, during those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. 400 years, they were oppressed, and the oppression was getting worse and worse and worse. At the time of the Exodus, where the story picks up, they were having all of their sons murdered um, right after birth. Their sons would be taken and thrown into the Nile River and be Drowned. I mean, this is how horrific the oppression had become. And they were crying out to God, please allow there to be a day in court. Please do what is right. Please deliver us from this sort of oppression. Then you fast forward in their history, and most of the tribes of Israel were taken into Assyrian captivity. And it was a terrible war that swept them away. And then a few hundred years later, The remaining southern tribes were taken over by the Babylonians and most of the people were killed. And many of them were taken as slaves off to Babylon. I mean, this is their history. It's a history marked by oppression, marked by injustice. So they see the idea of a God who judges evil, again, to be a great comfort in a universe that seems so evil. People who have lived through serious systemic oppression where power was solely fixed in the hands of their oppressors, can relate. You think of the Jews and the many others who endured Hitler's concentration camps in World War II. You think of African Americans in our own co- country, who generation after generation were enslaved, who were treated as less than humans. And it was at that time apparent that all the power was in the hands of their oppressors with no end in sight you think of the men women and children under the isis caliphate a couple of years ago and the many others in the world right now through human trafficking through so many other means who are right now saying there is nothing we can do we are powerless against the forces that are at work when people are in those sorts of circumstances the idea that god judges evil is a deep and profound comfort It is a divine perfection that unlike our human courts where miscarriages of justice can happen, where oppression can be perpetuated, in the heavenly court justice and equity will reign forever. Acts 17 31 tells us that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world, listen, in righteousness. No false judgment, no bribes for the judge, No, hey, we're on the same team. Let's oppress those people. None of that. He will judge the world in righteousness. If you turn to the far right of your Bible and you get to the end of the story, in the book of Revelation, we have a picture of heaven. And in Revelation chapter 20, the apostle John gives us a view into that final day in court. Here's Revelation 20, 11 and 12. John says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. Justice will triumph. Justice will carry the day. But of course, all of that still begs the question, Why does God allow injustice now? Why doesn't he stop all oppression now? What's he waiting for? Well, the Bible's going to give several answers to that, but Solomon provides one. He provides an answer in verse 18. Look again at verse 18. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them. That God is testing them. What's the test? What's the test? that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. He wants people, men and women just like you, to come to the realization that you are basically an animal. (laughs) Not the most polite thing to say, right? I remember when I was probably in junior high, my brother said to my dad one time, what's up, dog? My dad got so mad He looked at my brother. He said, I am not your dog. Don't ever call me that again. Me and my brother were like, obviously there was a generational disconnect there. Like we could say what's up dog to another person our age. Totally was not disrespectful. My dad did not take it that way. Did not want to be called an animal. And we learned our lesson. So kids in here, never call your parents anything like that. But this doesn't seem like the most polite thing to say. God wants all of us to understand you're just a beast. You're but a beast. But the point is, he's testing or he's proving or trying us to make it clear that we are like beasts in certain ways. And this brings us to the second insight that we find in Solomon's reflections here. God is testing people to reveal who they truly are. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, certainly if you stop and think about injustice, if you think about terrible oppression, it helps us to understand how inhumane and how animal-like we can actually be. That we as humans are capable of, of descending into the most base, inhumane, and unloving behaviors conceivable toward other people. Even though humans are created in the image of God, even though humans are God's highest creation, we often live and act as if we are no different than the beasts of the field. Rather than reflecting the character and nature of God, we often follow our passions and our desires to get what we want. And we step all over other people. We take advantage of other people. We abuse and oppress other people along the way. You've seen it all throughout history, and you see it all over the world today. Injustice and evil in the world show us how bad, evil, and depraved we actually are. And God has to reveal this to us. Because many people believe that man is basically good, that people at our core are good. Sure, we might not be perfect beings, but at our, at our core, we're good. Well, the Bible consistently challenges that idea. The Bible wants to make it clear that apart from God's grace, man is selfish and sinful. And that's why we need a savior. That's why we need rescue from our own sinfulness and our own selfishness. We're bent inward on ourselves and we want to take care of number one. And again, the net result of that is I'll abuse and oppress and take advantage of people to get where I want to go. And so the Bible's trying to teach us, listen, we're, we're not basically good. We're basically broken. We're basically sinful. And when you see injustice and oppression in the world, it makes that clear to us. H.G. Wells was a very, very famous uh, English author of the last century. And he's a great example of how this works. See, Wells in about the 1910s, 1920s, he believed what most intellectuals believed at that time in Europe and in the United States, that human beings were basically good. In the 1920s, he wrote a book that was extremely popular. It's called A Short History of the World. And in it, he wrote these words, and I quote, "'Can we doubt that presently our race "'will more than realize our boldest imaginations, "'that it will achieve unity and peace, "'and that our children will live in a world "'made more splendid and lovely "'than any palace or garden that we know, "'going on from strength to strength "'in an ever-widening circle of achievement.'" End quote. In other words, in his book, he's saying, we're we're like a generation away from utopia. We're a generation away from achieving paradise. Heaven on earth is, we're we're just, we're on the verge of achieving it. Can, Can there be any doubt that this is our future? Well, if you fast forward only 20 years in Wells' life, he changes his tune completely. No longer did he see mankind headed toward never-ending peace and unity, but instead he saw mankind as dark and fallen and evil. And of course, the reason for that is this little-known event called World War II. Men had returned to beast-like savagery. In his final book, written in 1945, The Year the War Ended, it's titled Mind at the End of Its Tether. Wells wrote, wrote these words, he said, the cold-blooded massacres of the defenseless, the return of deliberate and organized torture, mental torment, and fear to a world from which such things had seemed well-nigh banished has come near to breaking my spirit altogether. Homo sapiens, as he has been pleased to call himself, is played out, End quote. The in- inhumane treatment of other people the injustice that was so apparent in World War II was so appalling to this European intellectual that he, he, he said, look, it, it almost broke me. I can't even grasp how we could be this way. And it helped him to see what we actually are at our worst. We're beasts, we're depraved. But Solomon is not only implying that we're beast-like in the way that we treat each other, We're also like beasts in the sense that we are going to die and our bodies are going to return to the dust, just like the animals. In verse 20, there's a reference there to Genesis chapter 3 and the curse of Adam after falling into sin. He talks about us coming from dust and to dust we will return. In Genesis 3.19, as God brings down judgment on our first parents because of their sin, listen to what God says. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. It was sin that led to death in the first place. And now the reality of death reminds people of their sinfulness. Although these corrupt judges are getting away with their wickedness now, thinking that they're above the law, thinking that they have complete power over whatever they want to do to people, death will remind them that they're no different than the animal's. They're just dust. God is the one that is sovereign. God is the one that is in control. And sure, you might be doing what you want now. You might think that your wickedness is, is going to go on forever, but guess what? Just like the animals, you too will die. When Solomon says back in verse 19 that man has no advantage over the beasts, we must not take that in an absolute sense. He's speaking from an observational perspective in light of death. He's looking at the world and he's saying, like the animals, all of us too will die and will meet our maker. And in that sense, what advantage do we then have? But verse 21 is going to open the door for us to consider the main advantage. Verse 21 is a challenging verse. Here's how the King James Version translates it. Who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward to the earth? The question then, if you translate verse 21 that way, is a question about our knowledge of the spirit of a man or the spirit of a beast. So it's a question about, again, the spirit. And this is how most old commentators take verse 21. But most modern commentators and translators take it the way the ESV does here. Again, it's in a questioning form about the ultimate destiny of our spirits, He writes, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So it's a question about, we don't don't really know, it seems like he's saying, whether the spirit goes up if you're a person and the spirit goes down if you're an animal. But at the very least, even though it seems like he's questioning what happens to our spirit, for the author here in chapter three, death opens the possibility of eternal life. He's questioning it. It may be that a man's spirit does in fact go upward. Well, whatever we make of verse 21, we know that ultimately Solomon does understand that your spirit and my spirit and the spirit of every single person does in fact go upward, does in fact go back to God. In Ecclesiastes twelve seven, he writes, and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Perhaps then in verse 21 of chapter 3, Solomon is saying, in effect, I believe that a, spirit, a person's spirit goes upward to God after death, but who can truly know on this side of the grave? The fact of the matter is, according to the Bible, the human soul is eternal. In fact, back in verse 11 of chapter 3, we studied this last week, we learned that God has put eternity into man's heart. As we just saw from Genesis 3, death only entered into the human condition as a part of the curse. Prior to sin, our first parents, Adam and Eve, were destined to live forever with God. But sin separated our parents from the source of life himself. But of course, this is the very thing that Jesus came to this earth 2,000 years ago to rectify. By paying for our sins on the cross, Jesus removed the barrier that prevented us from the divine life. And through his resurrection, he offers us entrance into that life by faith in him. Thus, Jesus can promise you, me, and every other person who's ever lived eternal life. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life life. What great hope for those who are suffering in this world. Well, the third insight, the final insight that we can gain this morning comes in chapter four, and it's this. God is removing any chance of placing our hope in earthly life. Through injustice, through oppression, God is removing any chance of placing our hope in earthly life. And this is really important. As Solomon is considering the intense systemic oppression of people, he makes the startling assertion that it would be even better if they were not living. Those who were dead were more fortunate than those who were living through this oppression. And then even more startling, he says, that those who had not yet been born were the most fortunate of all. This guy would make a terrible therapist. Yeah, your life's tough. You know what would be better if you were just dead or if you were just never even born? It sounds harsh. It sounds like terrible, terrible advice. But, but here's his point. His point is that he's speaking from the, the perspective of intense human agony and suffering. And he's saying, look, at least those who are dead already or at least those who are yet to be born, they have not had to endure and experience what we're going through right now. They didn't have to endure how evil people could actually be toward one another. This is just raw feeling as Solomon is, again, looking at people being oppressed in the most horrific uh, sorts of conditions. And this is one of the things that I love about Scripture, is I love its realism. I love how God's word is not perfectly polished. It doesn't gloss over um, Human shortcomings and sin and the suffering that we see in the world, the scripture is very truthful and very honest about our human experience. And Solomon here is perfectly describing how people feel if they're enduring this level of suffering. Consider the prophet Elijah as he was being hunted down as a fugitive by the wicked queen Jezebel in 1 1 Kings. This is what he says or this is what we read, I should say, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and he came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life for I am no better than my father's. He was being hunted, he was being persecuted, he was being chased down and he got to a point where he said, this is just too much, it would be better for me if I could just die instead of having to continue going on with the anxiety and the angst of this. Or consider Job, who famously and tragically lost his ten children, he lost his wealth, he lost all of his servants, and he even lost his own physical health. He had lost everything that was good in his life. And here's what he says in Job chapter 3. He says, why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light, There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the greater there, and the slave is free from his master. Life can be that bad, where death seems preferable to life, and injustice and oppression are contexts for that. It's a terrible situation to be in. And it's beyond challenging to trace God's providential hand in those seasons and in those times in the world. But here is one of the purposes we see in it. For the person who's enduring that level of injustice, that level of oppression, where it seems that all power is in the hands of the oppressors, it frees them from falling into the delusion that this world is paradise. And that's a very real temptation for people who have never lived that way. For those of us who have lived lives that are largely protected from the inexplicable horrors that humans can perpetuate against each other, it's much easier to look at this world, especially in a place like Santa Barbara, and pinch yourself and go, yeah, I mean, heaven's going to be good, but it's kind of nice here. Things are kind of great now. But again, people who have not lived that, in that kind of a, a protected, secure, prosperous place, they don't resonate with that. And when, when you endure that, that kind of suffering, you're just not under that delusion. You're not looking for it here and now. You're freed from placing your hopes and your dreams and trying to find meaning and satisfaction and purpose in the here and now. Systemic injustice and oppression are tough, but effective tutors training our hearts to look beyond this life to the life to come, to the place where justice is going to, quote, the prophet Amos, is going to roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, to the place where God will not allow any evil to go unpunished. And in that sense, there are good providential purposes that are at work right now in the midst of, mystery, in the midst of what Solomon is calling vanity, absurdity, mystery, meaninglessness, we can see that God has good purposes at play. It's certainly not that God is causing evil in our lives, that God is the author of the evil in our lives. No, God is a good God, but God is in his infinite wisdom and his unlimited power and resources providentially taking all of the good, bad, and the ugly in this universe. And he's working good purposes in all of it. And the culmination of the story of the human race is going to be a story where justice and equity and righteous reign forever. And God is going to make sure of that. So in the here and now, God is teaching us humans what we actually are that we are but beasts, beast-like in our actions and attitudes when we're at our worst, and beast-like in our mortality as we contemplate our same end that will return to dust. And not only that, through injustice and oppression, God is helping people to look beyond the here and now to the there and then, to the eternal city whose builder and maker is God, where these things that the human heart longs for so deeply, like peace and justice and righteousness, and joy will continue on uninterrupted for all of eternity. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are once again grateful for this short 12-chapter book just tucked away in the middle of the Old Testament. A book that does not shy away from the challenging questions related to our life, related to meaning and purpose, related to origins and destinies, related to injustices and evil. We're so thankful that we have this piece of wisdom literature in the scriptures to help us navigate through these complexities in the world as it actually is. Not the world how we wish it would be or would hope that it is, but the world the way it actually is, a world that is damaged and altered because of human sin, a world where selfishness and sinfulness cause us to do all sorts of terrible things. Lord, we're so thankful for divine perspective on these matters today. Lord, we pray that you would help us as followers of Jesus to be advocates of justice and righteousness and equity in the world that we would not continue to perpetuate these destructive patterns that exist in the world, that we would not allow selfishness in our own hearts to get the upper hand on us and cause us to abuse or take advantage of or oppress other people around us. And Lord, we pray that in the power of the Holy Spirit, in accordance with your heart for the world, that we would be people who are constantly giving ourselves to alleviating injustices and oppression and suffering from our brothers and sisters around the world. Give us eyes to see what's going on and give us hearts to actually do something about it. And Lord, I pray as we witness these things and as we consider the darker recesses of this world and of the human condition, I pray, Lord, that you would humble us, that you would help us to constantly turn to you for deliverance from our own sins, And Lord, that you would help us to keep our hearts firmly fixed on the hope of the glorious future that is ours in Christ, that beautiful eternal city whose builder and maker is God. Help us to live for eternity. Help us to love you because you've loved us and help us to love our neighbor well, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, church, would you please stand to your feet and we're going to close with another song of worship and consider more and more of who God is in his perfect character. So let's worship.